0: decisions we face so many decisions an academic in minnesota did a study and reckoned he'd worked out that we all face between 300 and 17000 decisions every day now i don't know how he worked that out and it sounds pretty ridiculous range doesn't it 300 and 17000 bit of a difference so uh, i would take that with a pinch of salt but we certainly make many decisions And on some, Christians can all agree. Should you repeat that piece of malicious gossip that you've heard? I hope we all agree. No, that's clear. Don't repeat it. There's others Christians disagree on. What exactly should you do and should you not do on a Sunday? Well, I expect we could find a lot of disagreement in this room if we hammered down into some of the details on that. Decisions. Some of them, there's disagreement on amongst Christians. Now we saw last week our decisions fall into three categories. Daniel, can we have the come um, up on This was Corinthians seven last week as we're going through this letter, 1 Corinthians. There are all these cho- choices we face. That's the big circle. But in a smaller circle, some of them are a matter of wise or unwise. In a smaller circle still, some are a matter of God's commands. You see, God's commands cover some things, but not everything. Some things lie outside God's commands, but they're still a wise or an unwise choice. And some decisions, well, they're not in God's commands, they're neither really wise or unwise. They're just a matter of freedom. We're free to do whatever we wish. We saw that last week from 1 Corinthians 7. Thank you, Daniel and Rosie. What help does the Bible give as we face so many decisions? Well, 1 Corinthians 8 gives us help. It's part of three chapters, 8 to 10, helping us with making wise decisions. And I hope we'll be going through them over the next few weeks in different ways. Chapters 8, 9 and 10 help us with making wise decisions. Today... I'm going to try to get through all of chapter 8 and limit it to that. There's quite a lot here. Before we start going through chapter 8, let's first of all think, what prompted these chapters to be written? They're all about food being sacrificed to idols. And they're all in response to a question that the Corinthians seem to have asked. We saw it back at the beginning of chapter 7. They'd written to Paul already with their questions. And they had a question about whether it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. To which we might think, why on earth was that a question? Isn't it obvious, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, steer clear of idolatry? But idolatry was at the heart of their society. It affected every area of life. For example, did you buy food at the market? Well, it had probably been dedicated first to an idol before it ended up on the market stall. Was that okay? Did your neighbours invite you for a meal? Well, it would probably happen at an eating place in the idol temple's grounds. People didn't generally have big enough houses to invite other people round. Was that okay to go along? Did you have a job as a craftsman? Well, to be a craftsman, you'd almost certainly have to belong to a craft fellowship. And you'd be expected to join in feasts associated with your crafts fellowship's idols. Was that okay? These are the sorts of questions that were unavoidable to Christians in Corinth. To completely detach yourself from any contact with idolatry, would have been a bit like today, trying to completely detach yourself from the internet or the finance system. It's possible, but life would be pretty difficult. And so in this situation, they faced issues where Christians disagreed about what to do. And Paul will give them, here in chapter 8 and 9 and 10, wisdom to help. Now, please note, wisdom to help does not equal making it all easy. Wisdom to help doesn't mean making it all easy. Don't expect this sermon to provide a simple guide and at the end you'll have, oh good, I've got my simple guide, any decision I face, A, B, C, I can work it out and off we go. You see, the Christian life isn't like a computer program. You face a problem, you put the problem in, you run the program, out comes the answer. Because the Christian life is a relationship. It's all about loving God and loving your neighbour. And so God wants us to be continually thinking through and working at what is loving in this situation. Right, that was a rather longer introduction than normal. Let's now simply work through chapter 8. Let's start with verses 1 to 3, where we find knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Verses 1 to 3. Now, in verse 1, Paul may be quoting the Corinthians. It's likely, like he's done in chapter 7 at the start, and like he did in chapter 6, he's quoting a saying of theirs. This keeps happening in 1 Corinthians. A saying, something like, we all possess knowledge. Now, whether he's quoting them or not, this was a church proud of its knowledge. They were proud of what they knew. They were cultured Greeks. They were more sophisticated than the country bumpkins in Galatia who who might have simple views about idols. No, they were city-living, cultured Greeks and they were proud of their knowledge. They knew idols were just blocks of wood or stone or metal. There's, There's no reality behind them, no significance to them. They knew that what food you eat doesn't make you more holy or more sinful. Food is just neutral. They were clever people. The the country bumpkins of Galatia might get worried about this, but the the sophisticated city dwellers of Corinth, they knew better. And Paul will mainly agree with their knowledge. They've mainly got it right, and he's going to agree with them. But they still need to be rebuked. Gently, it will be a gentle rebuke, but it, it will be a rebuke. And there's our first lesson, actually. We can get things right in terms of knowledge, but still need rebuke. And the gentle rebuke is in verse one. It's this. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You Corinthians, you're so pleased with your knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. It's love that builds up. Now, does the Apostle Paul think knowledge is bad? Is he anti-knowledge? Well, What is 1 Corinthians? It's a letter. He's writing them a letter. He is imparting knowledge. And we found as we've gone through the first chapters, he keeps saying to them, don't you know? Don't you know this? Don't you know that? To these Corinthians, proud of their knowledge, he points out what they don't know but should know. He is not anti-knowledge. He's anti their pride and their reliance on their knowledge. Think of knowledge like air. Is air a good thing or a bad thing? Ah, it's a great thing, isn't it? I hope all service you've been taking in great lungfuls of air. And I hope you won't stop taking in lungfuls of air. It's good for you. But what about air blown into a balloon? What will that do? Well, it will just puff it up and puff it up. And if you keep on, unlike with your lungs, where you keep on taking in the air in your lungs, please. But in a balloon, if you keep on puffing it up, what eventually it will burst. Now, knowledge combined with love. That's good. What a lot of good you can do if you've got love and knowledge. You can use that to build others up. But knowledge on its own. Well, actually, it's never on its own. Knowledge combined with the sin that's still in our hearts, well, that will puff you up and puff you up. In other words, make you proud. And watch out if you keep getting puffed up, because you might burst. Paul is telling us here, God is telling us here, knowledge isn't the biggest thing in the Christian life. Yes, we might spend a lot of time coming to church and getting more knowledge. I hope we're not just getting more knowledge. Because knowledge isn't the biggest thing in the Christian life. Love is. Love is the biggest thing. Are you puffed up with knowledge? Or are you building others up because you love? When you go to home group, are you keen to show how much you know? Or are you keen to build others up because you love? By listening to them. Not just not doing all the talking. I'm having to say this to myself. Those who are in my home group will recognise I need this lesson myself. By not doing all the talking, but listening and praying for others. And yes, words that need knowledge. You need some knowledge to give some words that will build them up. But is your keenness to show your knowledge? Are you puffed up or is it to build others up? Do you love? When another Christian doesn't know as much as you, oh, do you feel puffed up? Or do you love and want to build up that fellow Christian? Now, if you're puffed up about your knowledge, verse 2 says something to you. Do you see what verse 2 says to you? It says if you're puffed up about your knowledge, you don't have the knowledge that really matters. You don't have the knowledge that really matters. That is guaranteed if you're puffed up about your knowledge. What is the knowledge that really matters? Well, I'll give you an example. I'm going to turn to Philippians chapter 3. You could listen or you could turn to it if you want. I'm just going to read verse 10. In fact, just the first phrase. What's the knowledge that really matters? Philippians 3 verse 10. I want to know Christ. That's the knowledge that matters. And that's not knowing lots of theories about Christ, it's knowing him personally. That's the knowledge that really matters. And back in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3 adds to that. It adds to that, it says, but the man who loves God is known by God. It says, the thing that matters isn't how much do you know, it's does God know you? That's what really matters. Not how much knowledge is between your ears. But does God know you? In other words, is he in relationship with you? And what's the sign that God knows you? It isn't how good your knowledge is. It's are you loving? Do you see that in verse 3? It's the person who loves God. Sorry, it's the person, yes, the person who loves God, who is known by God. Now let's put this all together. Verse 1 has told us love builds up. So do you tend to tear people down or do you tend to build people up? You've got to ask yourself that question. I've got to ask myself that question. Because verse 3 says, if you know God, you will love. And verse 1 says, if you love, you will build up. So do you tend to tear people down? Or do you tend to build people up? There's verses 1 to 3, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Let's move on now secondly to verses 4 to 6, knowing our freedom. The gentle rebuke in verses 1 to 3 has come to people whose knowledge is right. And Paul is now going to agree with them. Here's the agreement, verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. These people said it doesn't matter eating food sacrificed to idols because it's a nothing. It's just a block of wood. It's just a piece of stone. It's just a lump of metal. So eating food that's been sacrificed to it, it's not going to poison you. It's not got spiritual power to harm you. And God's word here says they're right. There is no such being as Krishna or Vishnu or Shiva or Brahma or any of the gods of Hinduism or any other religion. No such thing. There is only one God, verse 4 says at the end. And therefore, verse 5 says, whatever the many religions of the world may claim, it's simply untrue. There is only one God. And so that leads into the great statement of verse 6. Verse 6. For us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There's one God. There's not two or three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not different God's. It doesn't mean, by the way, Jesus is not God any more than it means the Father is not Lord. You see, if you're to take from verse 6, Jesus is not God because it says the Father is, you have to take that the Father is not Lord, (laughs) despite the Old Testament repeatedly calling him Lord. Uh, we're, We're in territory that's just beyond us. The relationship of the Father and Son, the Trinity, one God in three. I'd love to pause over verse six because it's a wonderful statement of the relationship of father and son. But we haven't got time. Let's just see this. Paul's agreeing with these people in Corinth. These idols are not real gods. The food sacrificed to them is still just food. The Corinthians are right. They're free to eat that food. But there's a big but. And this brings us on to the third section of the chapter, verses 7 to 13. And this section is lovingly restraining our freedom. Lovingly restraining our freedom. I'm going to make up an example. Let's make up a Greek woman called Ariadne. She used to worship at the local temple. She lived in fear, fear of the idol. And so she offered it food every week. And to be honest, as well as fearing the idol, she also enjoyed and was impressed by the rituals. She she did enjoy it. And there was something impressive about going through those rituals. But now she's repented and she's turned to the Lord Jesus. She's in verse seven. She's in verse seven. She's one of these people who is so accustomed to idols that if she eats food that has been dedicated to an idol, her conscience tells her, oh, I'm I'm getting involved in idolatry again. I'm going back to my old way of life. I'm fellowshipping with a false god. I'm in danger. And so if she eats such food, she's going against her conscience. And to go against your conscience is sin. Even if her knowledge is defective, and actually the other people who are are right, who say, look, it's no big deal. Still, it is sin for her to go against her conscience. Now, given all of that, which I've just there in the form of making up this woman, Ariadne, told you what's going on in verse 7. Given that, what way round would you expect verse 8 to be? Surely you'd expect verse 8 to be saying something like, Ariadne, you're no better off if you do not eat, and you're no worse off if you do. Come on, Ariadne, have this piece of beef. You're no better off if you don't eat, and you're no worse off if you do. But if you look carefully, verse 8 is not that way round. It's not the way round you'd expect if it was addressing a verse 7 person like Ariadne. Obvious conclusion, verse 8 is not addressing that person. Verse 8 is addressing the people who've got their heads stuffed with knowledge, and the knowledge may be right, and they think it's fine to eat this meat. And it's saying to them, well, it may be fine, but you're no worse off if you go without it, are you? If you go without that piece of beef or chicken, you're not going to be any worse off. Why does he want to tell them, look, you you can go without the meat, you won't be worse off? Because then in verse 9 and 10, he'll say to that person, so don't, by your example of eating that meat, lead someone like Ariadne into sin. How could you lead someone like Ariadne into sin? Well, let's make another, let's make up another Greek person. This time it's Phoebe. Phoebe gets invited to a social meal. Her neighbours invite her around. And she'd think, this would, be, this would be a good witness if I went and spent time with my neighbours. It would be rude to say no to them. They really wouldn't understand it. And along she goes to a social meal in the temple grounds. Happy in her conscience that there's no problem. That nasty looking image on the wall is just a nothing. I will ignore it and try to be a witness to my neighbours. But Ariadne sees her going into the temple, eating place. And Ariadne thinks, oh, Phoebe is so much more knowledgeable than me. And Phoebe is someone everyone at church respects. And if she's going into the temple, it must be okay. And I know that everyone else at church thinks I'm being a bit silly by not going. And they think I'm a really weak person. So she goes. But it's still against her conscience to go. And so Phoebe has led Ariadne into sin. Does it matter? Have a look at verse 11 to see if it matters or not. Verse 11 says, look where this can lead. It can lead into destroying a Christian brother or sister. And it's a strong word there. It's the word for eternal destruction. Now, don't push the language in verse 8 into a subject that's not here in chapter 8. Whether people Jesus died for can end up in hell. It's not the subject of chapter 8, so don't push the language there. That's not where it's meant to go. Instead, remember this, Christians must persevere. Christians must keep going. Christians must not say, Jesus died for me, all my sins washed away, so it doesn't matter what I can do, I can play around with that sin, all will be fine. Christians must persevere in the fight against sin. It's not optional. And to help us do that, Jesus has given us a conscience. Think of your conscience as being like the electronic warning signs on the motorway. We've all seen them, haven't we? There they are overhead, those big blackboards that have electronic signs on them. And sometimes they say there's going to be an obstacle ahead in the road. And it turns out there isn't. Haven't you experienced that? Sometimes they get it wrong because maybe the obstacle was cleared an hour ago and the sign is still saying it. And in a fallen world, sometimes our conscience gets it wrong. But it's still good enough to be worth listening to. But if we encourage people to go against their conscience, if we think, you silly person, come on, you've got it wrong. You're just being a bit oversensitive. And we push them to go against their conscience. Well, that's like switching off the power to the electronic warning signs on the motorway. We are damaging people's ability to avoid sin and keep following Jesus. Do you notice how far the Bible is from saying, oh well it would be better not, it would be better not to sin. But in the end it doesn't matter because we're all safe. Because the gospel means we're all safe. Now the Bible doesn't say that. It says you must persevere. Sin is serious. And we must be careful not to lead others into it. So instead you get this, verse 12. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. The church is his body. Each believer is loved by him. That person belongs to Jesus. And so Paul's reaction is verse 13. Verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Wow! Well, we say, Paul... Don't you understand your freedoms? You're free to eat. Don't you know that idol is nothing? What about your rights? And what you eat is quite a big deal, isn't it? Paul, you need a bit of meat. Are you really saying you're going to be a vegetarian all your life? And you don't even believe it's right? But you're just going to do it anyway? Ah, yes, says Paul. Because my rights, my freedom, and me being having a nice bit of meat each week, that's all unimportant, compared with helping my Christian brothers and sisters. Do you notice every, every time, verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, it keeps reminding them, this is your brother. This is someone in your Christian family. To help them keep following Christ, to help them avoid sin, that's far more important than my rights and freedoms. Well, we've gone through chapter eight. I won't claim that I've covered it all in detail. But let's let's think about some other applications of this, because I don't suppose we generally face the issue of whether our food is offered to idols or not. It isn't much of a pressing issue for us, although I do notice at lunchtime, actually, in our conversation over lunch. Someone was saying about being invited to Muslim and Hindu weddings. That she'd been invited to Muslim and Hindu weddings. And then and the issue of do you go along and how much that's getting involved in Muslim and Hindu worship. And I know there are people at Hollywell who, who have in practice faced issues of um, family expecting them to get involved in rituals connected with ancestor worship. So it's not as detached maybe as people a few decades ago thought in England. But chapter eight isn't just about literal idol worship. It's broader than that. And I expect you could think of some issues, nothing to do with idols, where Christians differ. Issues of conscience that chapter eight is very relevant to. I'll give you some examples. Going to the pub. Drinking alcohol. Do your children read Harry Potter with its witches and wizards and magic? What you watch on TV, doing yoga, what you do or don't do on a Sunday, issues where Christians differ. And now even just giving that list shows up a difficulty. Because, And the difficulty is this, knowing when something falls into this 1 Corinthians 8 category. When something is a conscience issue that Christians are free to differ over. I expect there will be disagreements in this room over whether some of the items in my list were right. Some people might be saying, no, no, that's that's just nothing, that's an irrelevance. Some people might be saying, no, that's not a conscience issue, that's a law issue, and you shouldn't do it, full stop. There's one of our difficulties, what comes under this category? And in these disagreements, here's our first application. 1 Corinthians 8 tells us to respect each other's conscience. Now, to be more accurate, it doesn't say respect a lax conscience. This doesn't work both ways. It doesn't say respect a lax conscience. I'll make up an example. Roger says, I'm happy in my conscience with putting wrong numbers in my tax return because we've got an ungodly government and they have no right to my money. And so I've got a happy conscience about putting the wrong figures in. No, no, Roger. (laughs) We cannot respect your conscience. You are plain wrong. You're going against clear principles in the Bible. But 1 Corinthians 8 says, respect consciences that you think are too strict. I hope you'll forgive a personal example When I was a student, it went against my conscience to go to the pub. Now there were specific reasons for that. My dad, before he'd been converted, used to drink two bottles of gin a day. And to him, a pub was a place you went with the sole purpose of getting drunk and having a fight. So that was the whole image of pubs that, that I had. And my local pub was like that. And so it went against my conscience to go to the pub. I lived with another Christian student who thought this was just silly and weak and he pushed me to go to the pub. And he pushed me that you're just being silly and weak and you ought to come with us to the pub. I didn't, by the way. I now think my conscience was wrong. I now think it would have been okay to go. But 1 Corinthians 8 is clear he shouldn't have pushed me. However wrong my conscience might have been, he should have respected my conscience. It's an important principle. Here, For example, another similar example. A group of Christians are going to watch a film together. And for one of them, it goes against his conscience. He says, I'm not happy in my conscience to watch that. I think that's playing with sin. And that's likely to lead me into sin. Well, they shouldn't encourage him to go. And I think a good application of verse 8 would be to say, Well, we don't need to watch this film. We're no better off if we watch it, and we're no worse off if we don't. You might argue if you think it's a brilliant film, but there aren't many you really need to watch, are there? So it'd be better for them just to say, let's find something else to do. And not wound our fellow Christian's weak conscience, however wrong we might think he is. But... That, that, that was one application, respect a weak conscience, but that leads to the next application, we must be open to having our consciences corrected. Why does Paul include verses 4 to 6 in this chapter? Saying In verses 4 to 6, he's basically saying the knowledge party have got it right, their knowledge is correct. They're right about idols. Why does he bother saying that if they're already right? Is he just saying, 10 out of 10, let me blow some air in and puff your head up further? No, obviously not. He's showing the people with a weak conscience, actually, you're wrong. You're wrong. This idol is a nothing. But do you notice how gently he's doing it? He doesn't say, come on, you silly people, you're wrong. How can you be so foolish about idols? He just very gently sows the thought in their mind. Have they got this wrong? Because his priority is not to improve people's knowledge, it's to improve people's love. But he wants them to be open to having their conscience corrected. Back to me as a, as a student and pubs. Later on, I got a job for HSBC, working in an office. And what did I discover? Every Friday, lunchtime, everyone goes off to the pub. And I started to wonder, maybe I've got this wrong. Maybe I ought to go with them. Maybe it's important for my relationship with them and witness to them. And I talked to my dad about this, who, remember, had, had a big problem with pubs and alcohol. And he talked me through the principles, uh, including the sort of ones we find in 1 Corinthians 8. And we together came to the conclusion that it was right for me to go, and I did. Notice that he talked me through it and my conscience was corrected. It's very different from the person just trying to push me to go against my conscience. I, I also find this interesting, that my dad, the plumber, who never took an exam in his life, was wiser than my fellow university student who later that year got a first and went on to Harvard Law School. Yeah? Wisdom and intelligence are far from the same thing. Be open to having your conscience correct it. One more application. Well, actually, I'm only going to mention it because it's really big and we're running out of time. So I can only mention it. Verse 13. Aren't there so many applications to us of verse 13? We live in a society where our freedom to have what we choose, to use our time as we choose, to experience what we choose is really top of the values, isn't it? Our freedoms, our choices, our experiences, that's really top of the values. And God's word says, no, others' good, protecting others from sin, others' conscience, even if you think it's oversensitive, comes above your freedom to choose. Wow, that's big. and I'm sure you can think of many applications of that but we've run out of time. Instead, let me finish with this. Where did the Apostle Paul get that verse 13 attitude from? How did the Apostle Paul become someone who says, I will go without things that are my right to help others against sin? Well, it's actually the main theme of the book. This letter, 1 Corinthians 8, what's its main theme? Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's the greatest act of putting, saving others from sin above his own rights and freedoms. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The main theme of 1 Corinthians is the cross isn't just the ticket into the Christian life. It is the power and pattern for the Christian life. The cross is not just to be believed. I hope you believe it. But it's not just to be believed, it's to be lived. The cross is the shape of Christian living. And 1 Corinthians 8 has given us a specific practical example of how we should do it. Let's encourage each other to do it by singing a song about love. It's one we've sung quite a few times, but please do take notice as you sing it of the teaching we're giving each other about Christianity.